0: Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to John chapter 8. I think I had an error in the bulletin this week where I said we were going to be in John chapter 4, but we're going to be actually in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. Turn with me there and let me pray, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, once again, we just thank you for the opportunity to be here, to participate in this. Really ancient of rhythms of, of gathering together as your people to study your word. Lord, we confess that we look within for truth, with the futile exercise, existentialism has failed. We need something outside of us uh, to know the way that we should go, to understand reality. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the, the lasting, eternal nature of your word. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would come together with your word today in a way that he would do work that really only he can do, which is of convicting us of our sin. Maybe it's sin that we've justified for years or we've hidden back in some dark corner of our heart. But Lord, I just pray that you would shine the light of the gospel in those areas. Lord, I also pray that you would just give us eyes to see, give us faith. Help us to see your word and your gospel as beautiful and glorious today. Spirit, come and do the work that only you can do, that we need you to do today. Lord, to that end, I also pray that I would uh, not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, I've had a what I think is a unique front row seat to the pro-life movement since the mid-1980s. And I say it's unique because it started really young for me. Some of you uh, know... Uh, my history with, with that movement, but even though I was born in 1978, I, I've really uh, watched this movement for a long time, and probably in either 1982 or 1983, my father was up late watching TV one night, and, a, and an early pro-life documentary popped on the TV, just really randomly, and he uh, watched it and was super engaged by There was something about it that grabbed him, but what the video was, was it was an early sonogram, but it was a sonogram of, of an abortion happening. And the way it was shot, it, it seemed as if uh, this unborn baby pulled back in pain in the moment, and it did what it would do to you and I. It, it broke his heart. And he just uh, was resolved in that moment to somehow get involved in that issue. And really, at, at, uh, and all of that culminated in the Woman-to-Woman Pregnancy Resource Center. And at one level... That issue for him and for many of us is a, is a legal issue, or it's an ethical issue, or it's a, even a political issue. But as my father dove into that issue, it was those things at first, and he was on a kind of a lobbying board for the state and these different things. But at the end of the day, he got to a point of saying, hey, I want to help, I want to really pour my energies into real ladies in my community, I don't want this to be just this ethical discussion or this debate to win. I, I want to help real ladies. And, and that's, has uh, you know, uh, that, that led to the, the founding of the Woman-to-Woman Pregnancy Resource Center. And really, that's my favorite part of serving on the board of Woman-to-Woman. You see, it takes a lot of courage for a young lady with an unplanned pregnancy to walk into Woman-to-Woman. Life has become very chaotic for her. It's become very out of control. Almost like you know, she's in the middle of this swirling storm around her. And it takes a lot of courage, a lot of guts to, to step in and, and, and go there for help. And maybe if you don't even know what you're going to do there to sit down with someone that you don't know and talk about this most intimate of struggle that you're having. And, and that's what I love the most about that ministry is the volunteer counselors there that, that just love these ladies, these real ladies with, with a real struggle, a real problem with real fears, and, and they meet them right where they're at. They're not just someone that they're trying to win a debate with. They're an individual loved by God. They're they're not a project to fix, but they're a person to love. And I think it's just a, a great example of the way Jesus loves us. The volunteers at the Pregnancy Resource Centers, they don't love like the rest of the world loves. It's not a conditional love. They love people the way Jesus loves people in an unconditional way. They love women with dignity. They love women with compassion, and they love women with salvation this story of jesus with the adulterous woman it's really important for a couple of reasons number 1 jesus treats different he treats women differently than the world treats women this is this amazing story where where jesus treats this woman in ways that the men in that moment don't treat her but also, society as a whole, and men typically, have treated women in different ways. Many times, men have treated women as less in some way. But Jesus treats her differently. He treats her with, with real dignity and real respect. Listen, the world can be hard for all of us. But the reality of it is, there, there are some difficulties and hardness about this world that are unique to women that men don't have to experience. The world can be hard for women. And, and it's just, it's something that's just reality, but, but Jesus treats women differently than men tend to treat women. Jesus treats women with a compassion. He has this compassionate posture towards her. And even better, he offers her a solution to her problem, not only to the problem that day, but to uh, her ultimate problem. The second reason why I think this story is so important is that Jesus becomes a model for how men should treat women. You know, sometimes we talk about, hey, when we interpret the Scriptures, we don't want to just look at Old Testament stories and say, okay, let's go be like David or do these character studies. We're we're just following their example. But so much of what Jesus' ministry is about is to say, this is the ideal man. This is the ideal person, and this is how we're supposed to live. So this story becomes a model, if you will, of how men are supposed to treat women. That's why this story is so important. Now, before we dive into this text, if you're looking at your Bible, you can put it in there that this passage is not in the original autographs, meaning the original piece of paper where either Paul or his amanuensis wrote it down, that this, this scripture, this passage, is probably not in the original autographs. Now, for some people, they say, well, maybe we shouldn't preach it as a, res- as a result of it. Well, let me, I'm not going to take too long on this, but uh, textual criticism is a really helpful discipline that helps us determine what is the English version that we're reading. Textual criticism is this study of where scholars go back to the earliest documents that we have and they try to piece together, okay, what, what did the original autographs actually say? We don't have a, a hard copy of the original autographs that we were written, but we have these early 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century uh, documents and, and scholars try to piece together, okay, what is the scriptures that we have? Now, before you panic and think this is the Wild West of determining what we have, the more you study textual criticism... The actual more confidence you're going to have in the scripture that you hold in your hands. You see, there's over 5,000 copies from those first and second centuries of the New Testament. And and by comparison, I mean, that's like five times more than these original copies that we have at the same period of like the Iliad or the Odyssey of these things. And and there's something like 97% accurate on on everything on all these different documents. And you might say, you're probably going to the 3%. And you might think, okay, well, what are all these discrepancies? Many times the discrepancies are there uh, maybe a monk as he's writing something down he forgets to write a sigma at the end of one word and then that gets passed down and there's one letter that's missing but hear me on all those discrepancies that are there none of it touches our core uh, you know gospel doctrines on anything so it doesn't change the gospel in any way however with this passage is kind of unique in that those earliest documents this passage is not in there and then in some of the later documents, I think this is interesting, it's located at different places in the Gospel of John. A, a, a third argument for why it's probably not in the original is some of the Greek in here is slightly different than some of the Greek that John is using. Now, you might close your Bible and say, okay, why are we even here? Well, the reason why we're even preaching this and looking at this passage is, is I think this is something that actually happened. Of course, everything that Jesus did is not recorded in the New Testament, Right? talks about this in Luke, that there would not be enough volumes to fill all that Jesus did. So Jesus did things that are outside of uh, the Gospels. And I think what is probably going on here is this is an account of, of something that actually happened and was part of maybe the oral tradition of the church and then was later added in. Now, that's speculation I recognize, but everything in this story rings true. Everything in this story rings true. The way these uh, Pharisees and religious leaders treat this woman, that's the the way they treated other people. And the way they try to trap Jesus, they do that in other places. And then Jesus' response is very uh, consistent to Jesus' responses in other places. That's why I think this story is something that actually happened and why we're looking at it today. Now, there's six movements uh, in this story. The first movement that we're going to look at is the relationship between the men and the woman. The second movement is we're going to look at the sin. Then third, we're going to look at the trap. And then Jesus responds to this trap in three different ways. Number one is the stone. Number two is the sand. And then he offers her salvation. So look with me starting in chapter 7, verse 53, and we're going to go all the way down to verse 11. They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teach to the act of adultery. Now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say?" verse 6. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down And wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Verse 8. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said to him, "'No one, Lord.' And Jesus said, "'Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more.'" Let's first look at at the men and how they treat this woman. It's interesting, some of these characters, that there's a couple of natural enemies that come together. The scribes and the Pharisees were natural enemies. They they didn't work well together, but now they have this common enemy of Christ where they come together to trap Jesus and, and embarrass this poor woman. Now, there's a, a real rapid pace to this story. It, it's chaotic and it moves really quickly. But what happens here is in this frantic, chaotic moment from really start to finish, we see this scene where, this, where they rapidly grab her and then they throw her before Jesus. And there's no indication that she was naked, but she certainly wasn't all put together. Uh, her clothes are probably torn. Maybe her hair's a mess. But I also want you to notice just the really rude and abrasive nature of this entire scene. Here Jesus is trying to teach in in a very rude and unrespectful way. They interrupt his teaching and and they throw her in the middle of it. And, and what they're doing here is very disrespectful and it's very harsh and it's certainly rude to Jesus. But more importantly, uh, is it rude to Jesus? It, it's a it's really awful and and harsh towards her. You see, forget about the rudeness to Jesus. These men treat her in a way that is, that is harsh and is mean. They, they drag her in, uh, out of this most intimate of moments. They, they've physically, really the best way to understand it is that they've kidnapped her and then they've dragged her before the, this crowd. They throw her in the middle of it and they basically threaten to kill her then in the middle of it. This is, this is a horrible moment. This is a harsh moment. This is a mean moment. This is certainly a chaotic moment. Also, they publicly announced to the world her worst moment. You see, none of us are our worst moments. However, she is now her worst moment in these men's eyes as well as in the eyes of the crowd. They don't see her. Maybe they've passed her along the street as they were shopping or going about their day. They don't see her as a person or just or another woman. They see her as an adulterer. This is humiliating. It's like if whatever worst thing that you've ever done, What if that got blasted in front of uh, all of the internet or or blasted in front of your friends at church or the friends in your neighborhood? That's what's going on here. Can't you feel the shame of this moment? Here she is in her worst possible moment. She's caught in it, and then she's thrown before them. Again, there's a harshness and a meanness that everything that is being done to her. They don't see her as a person. They don't respect her dignity. She's simply a pawn in a game that they're playing. They're using her, and what is worse, the man she was with, he was probably probably using her too. The men around her don't respect her worth and her honor. They don't see her as a daughter or a sister, as a friend. They don't see her. They, they only see her through the her worst possible lens. She's no longer a person to them. She's something less. And I think that that touches on something uh, throughout history that we see in the way men relate to women. Of course, it's not every man, and it's not every culture, but there is this theme of men treating women as something less. Maybe, maybe we treat them as objects or not persons. We've not re- respected a woman's dignity. Women have been used as a means to an end, and without knowing any of the specific situations of anyone here in our church, I promise you that there are women in this room that have been used in similar ways. I promise you there are women here right now that have been used in some way. Maybe you've been used sexually. Maybe what was an expression of love for you was just a good time for Him. Men, if you don't think women today still get used by men, then you need to learn more about the problem of human trafficking. This is why we partner with a a group like Women and have an information night like we're having next Sunday. It's just for us to understand this problem better, understand the pain of it, Understand that these types of things still happen today. These men were rude to Jesus and they were harsh to this woman. They humiliate her. They use her as a, as a pawn in a game to trap Jesus. They don't see her as a person. They see her as something less. And many men have always treated women without dignity and respect. And again, I promise you, there are ladies in this room that have been used by men. Well, that's this first step of how these men related to this woman. Now, let's look at the sin. You see, these men charge her with a, with a sin of adultery. She's had a sexual relationship with a man that was not her husband. Now, of course, it takes two to tango, if you know anything about the birds and the bees. And it's striking that he's not there, right? Like, like she's brought here, but, but he's not dragged before the crowd. So, so whatever justice she should face, he should face it also. So there's real inconsistency in their charge, isn't it? They're taking this very righteous, pious stand, but they only bring her there. They see her as less. They're willing to humiliate her, but they're not willing to humiliate him. Further, they alter God's law. Now, we need to dig into this a bit to to really sniff out what they're doing. Like they're pitting, they're charging that God's law that Moses says to stone her. Really what they're doing actually, though, is is altering uh, God's law. In Deuteronomy 22, it talks about uh, that that, uh, someone could be executed if if she was a betrothed woman, a woman who was engaged to a man, and she said she was a virgin, but she really wasn't. Then she was open to the charge of uh, of being uh, executed for that. In that same passage, it talks about a man who makes a false claim about a woman's purity. He also can be executed. So there are these uh, passages in the Old Testament, in God's law, that call for an execution here. But the Deuteronomy 22 passage doesn't really apply to this scenario because that's not specifically talking about adultery. It's talking about that betrothal period. Probably a better passage to look at is Leviticus 20. And in Leviticus 20, it does specifically uh, talk about uh, adultery. And in that passage, it says that both the man and the who are caught in adultery should be put to death. But in both of those passages, it doesn't require death by stoning. Here's the point. They're altering God's law and what they're charging. And in fact, they're, they're, the woman was clearly in sin, and she's created a very grave sin. And maybe, maybe you've ex- uh, experienced this sin against you. Maybe you've had uh, uh, your spouse or, or an ex who has committed adultery against you, and you know the pain of this sin. It's a serious sin that has painful consequences. But the reality of it is, is these men were willing to humiliate her and not humiliate the man. These these men were harsher to her than the punishment that God's law uh, demands. So they were treating her with more wrath than God or his word was treating her. But the question is why? Why we're doing that? Well, the third movement here is the trap. The reason why they're doing all of this is in order to trap Jesus. And the trap is this. It's a trap between the Romans and the law. You see, if Jesus said, yes, let's stone her. The Romans didn't give the the Jews the authority to execute someone. So if they all would have stoned that woman that day, they were probably going to be executed then by the Romans. However, if he said, no, we shouldn't stone her, then on the other end, there was this trap against the law. Then, Then he would lose credibility with the people by not believing in God's law. So there was this trap between the Romans and the law. And further, these men were using a vulnerable woman to trap Jesus. Now, Jesus responds in three ways. Number one is the stone. Look again at verse 7. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What Jesus does is he spins this trap around. They try to put him in a trap. Well, he just spins it around on them. You see, the same trap that he was trying to catch them in, they're now caught in the same trap, right? You see, if they start stoning her, they're going to have to answer to the Romans. But if they don't stone her, but they say the law says you should stone them, then they're not believing in the authority of the law. But however, also notice that Jesus does what is his pattern over and over again in the New Testament, where he cuts to the heart. He he doesn't just care about the behavior, he cuts to the heart. He says, let him who is without sin. You see, he gets to the heart of sin here. He highlights their own sinful hearts. He gets to the motivation of why they're trying to stone her, and why they're trying to trap him. He, he highlights that what they're doing is not righteous. What they're doing is actually sinful. He cuts to the heart. And I think it's also important uh, for us to see that he's not willing to sacrifice this humiliated woman in the process. Like they're, they're more than willing to sacrifice her in this process in order to get to him, but he's not willing to do the same. You see, Jesus is not willing to use her in similar ways. He's showing her dignity, the dignity that they refuse to show her. He doesn't treat her as a pawn in a game, but a person in his kingdom. The second thing that he does is he starts writing in the sand. Look at verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. Now, when I get to heaven, this is one of the questions I'm going to be asking. What in the world were you writing in the sand? There's a lot of speculation on what he was writing, and, and we don't know, but there is a clue in there, and this is. Maybe the funniest part of the story. The old guys slipped away first. Whatever Jesus was putting down, they were picking up. Whatever he was doing, they saw what was going on. Now, maybe he was writing down a a list of sins. Or maybe he was writing down a list of sins and then tagging a name to that sin. Whatever he was writing, they understood what he was saying. And the old guys slip away. Now, there's a paradoxical aspect to the story at this point. You see, those men brought her in front of Jesus to shame her and to shame him. But who's the one who, is act, who are the ones who are actually shamed in the end? It's these men, right? The, these ones who are trying to charge her and, and try to uh, catch her in something and to try to shame her and to shame Jesus, they're the ones who are left in shame. And this leads to the final movement of the story and his final response, which is salvation. Jesus responds by riding in the sand and calling them to cast the first stone. But then in verses 10 and 11, uh, he says this, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I want you to first notice that he addresses her with woman. Woman. Now, this is not a harsh address. This is, this is a tender address. This is not meant to be harsh. It's, to, it's meant to highlight that he views her with dignity. Notice that he's the only one in the story that addresses her directly as a person. They're willing to talk about her. They're willing to charge her with things. But Jesus is the one that speaks directly to her. He doesn't see an adulterer. He sees her. He treats her with dignity. He treats her with respect. He treats her like an individual, not an object. To Jesus, she's not a pawn in a debate to be used, but she's a person to be loved. Second, the the men were condemning her. They were publicly denouncing her. It's as if they were saying, you're dead to me. You've crossed the line. You're dead to me. Maybe you've experienced this with a family member or with a friend. Maybe you've crossed some sort of line, and then you're dead to them. You no longer have a relationship with you. Uh, They don't invite you over anymore. They don't call you back anymore. They condemn you. But Jesus responds in a different way. He has compassion towards her. You see, in Luke 19, uh, when Jesus met the tax collector, he told him the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He looks at her with compassion and says, This is not someone I'm to condemn. This is someone that I've come to seek and to save. She's lost. This is where we, uh, the reason he brings salvation is so that believers can, can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. They're not condemned in this. She's not condemned in this moment. He brings salvation to her. The, relig- the religious leaders sought to condemn her, but Jesus showed her compassion. And, and finally, this saving included not condoning her sin. You see, he knew she was in sin. She knew she was in sin. Everybody around her knew she was sin. Today, 2,000 years later, as we read this, we know that she was in sin. So, that, so no condemnation does not include condoning sin. Jesus doesn't say it's okay that you've committed adultery. He doesn't say that. He just doesn't condone her for eternity without salvation. Jesus does not save us so that we can sin all that we want. That's not freedom. That's bondage. Those of you who have, have been in bondage to your sin, when we're young and maybe when we're dumb, we can think just doing whatever we want, that that's freedom. That's not freedom. Just chasing all your fleshly desires, that's bondage, not freedom. Jesus, or God says in uh, Ephesians 4.11 that uh, He saves us so that we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He doesn't condemn her, but He also doesn't wink at her sin. Rather, he, he, uh, he brings her true and lasting and real salvation. Another way of thinking that about this is that he, he loves her enough to forgive her is what he does. He doesn't condone her sin, but he also doesn't condemn her for eternity. He does the hard work of forgiving her. Ladies, unlike the world and unlike many men, Jesus views you with dignity. You're not a, a pawn in a game that God is playing. You see, you're, you're not an object to God. You're, you're a beloved person that he's created in his image. You're not a pawn or an object. He doesn't want to use you up and then toss you aside. He wants to adopt you, and then he wants to walk with you. He wants to walk with you through all the mountaintop moments of life. He wants to walk with you in all the trials of life. He, he wants to walk with you in all the mundane moments of life. He wants to be with you. He doesn't just see your sin. He doesn't just see your worst possible moment. He sees you and you have dignity in his eyes. I have two questions about his dignity that he he views you with. Do you believe that and do you receive that? What it means to believe that, that you have dignity in God's eyes. It means, uh, it means believing those tender truths. It means that uh, you turn from all other options. And you, and you say, yes, I'm going to live that way. I'm going to follow you the rest of my life. That's what it means to believe that truth. If you really believe that Jesus views you with dignity as a person created in his image that he died for and loved, it means that, that you follow him with everything receiving it means that you do the faithful work of applying that truth that he views you with dignity as a person that you apply that again in the mountaintops and in the valleys and in the mundane that you apply that to all areas of your life do you believe Jesus views you with dignity even when your ex does not do you receive that do you receive that Jesus views you with dignity even when you feel like that humiliated woman Second, ladies, unlike the world and unlike many men, Jesus not only views you with dignity, but he views you with compassion. He, he doesn't view you like those harsh men viewed that woman. You see, they saw only her sin. They saw only her worst possible moment. But that's not how Jesus viewed her. He, he knew all about that. He, he knew what she had done, but he was tender towards her even in spite of that. In Luke 7 and then in Matthew 15, there's these accounts that talk about how Jesus had compassion for a woman. That means he had these feelings of compassion. And that followed with these actions of compassion. You see, when you are at your worst, Jesus feels compassion for you. We don't believe that, do we? When we're at our worst, we, we think that Jesus... When we're at our worst, Jesus actually has compassion for us. I'll ask those two questions again. Do you believe that and do you receive that? Do you really believe that Jesus has compassion for you? Do you receive that compassion? You see, believing it means that, that, that once and for all, you trust Jesus' work on the cross. It means that you believe that what he did on that cross was this ultimate compassion for you. That you believe that you're no longer earning your way to a right relationship with him, but you're just accepting that grace that he's given with you so that you're going to spend eternity with him. Receiving it means accepting his concern when you need it. You see, when you are in that woman's shoes, we tend to run away from Jesus instead of running to Jesus. Receiving his compassion means running to him, especially when you blow it we pray a lot for you in this church, the staff and the elders. We get together, we just, we just pray. We go down these lists of names of what's going on. And periodically we go, hey, wh- wh- where's this guy been for a few weeks? We haven't seen him. And many times when somebody kind of just quietly disappears, there's something going on in their heart or their life. And when we reach out to them, we find that in reality they're, they're running from God. They've done something to where like Jonah, they're running away from God. But what this says is that in our worst possible moments, He has compassion for us. He wants us to run to Him. This woman is at the lowest moment of her life. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't turn His face away. He draws her in. Well, Ladies, unlike the world and unlike many men, Jesus not only views you with dignity and compassion, but He offers you salvation. You see, that crowd condemned her. In their eyes, they, they were, in essence, they were saying, you're dead to me. They, in fact, they were calling to kill her, right? You see, they were condemning her. They were, she was dead to them. She had crossed this line that they refused to forgive. However, with Jesus, the, when sin tries to win, grace abounds. You see, no matter all the different ways that you have fallen short, His grace continues to cover all of those things. His grace is just stacked on top of grace. Or We've talked about it at times that His grace is like these powerful waves that just keep coming. No matter what sin you've committed, He continues to offer grace. He continues to cover you with His grace on top of grace, this unstoppable waves of grace caring for you. Because of your sin, Jesus provides salvation. But again, do you believe that and do you receive that? Believing that means you turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus. That's the good news of this passage. It's praying that prayer, confessing what you have done and professing your faith in Him. Receiving it means that, that you're renewed day by day by those waves of grace. Every morning you look to Him and His grace for abundant life. You, you, don't, you don't buy into what the devil or what some man says about you as if that's who you are. But you find life believing in what He says that you are. And you just receive His grace over and over again. Receiving salvation means letting His grace be the water that refreshes your souls. Believe and receive Jesus' love today. Even though those men in that crowd condemned and hated her, Jesus loved her. He loved her in ways that she couldn't even understand. And the call is to believe and to receive that love. He offers you that same love that he offered to her. Life can become scary and chaotic at moments, right? What a terrifying moment that she was in. What an out-of-control moment that she was in. Everything just seemed to swirl around her. A, a number of weeks back, when we had our last ice storm. I drove up from the house to just check on the church. It was, I wanted to make sure pipes weren't bursting or anything. And we lived pretty close. And so I put the truck in four-wheel drive and I slowly made my way and I didn't get on the highway, but I stayed on the service road. And when I got up kind of right over here to that U-turn where I would turn back up towards the I got into the U-turn lane and started turning, the truck started sliding. So I quickly, you know, changed gears and got into the other lane at the light. And and then I, they gave me a green light, and I turned left on Corinth Parkway. And once again, the truck started spinning, and I got closer and closer to those poles. And it was one of these weird moments where, like, my heart rate was going up, but everything also kind of seemed to slow down at the same time. It was just one of those scary, swirling moments where you really felt out of control, right? That, that's what this woman is feeling that day. Like, like can, can you imagine what she's walking through here? Life was so chaotic. Life felt so out of control for her. Can you feel the fear that she was feeling that day? What, what a terrifying moment. The accusations were coming from all different directions. She caught a, another lady's eyes. That lady would turn away in disgust from her. She was humiliated. Her clothes were probably torn. She probably wasn't fully covered. Her, she was rattled and couldn't move. I'm sure her hands were shaking by the terror of it all, but she also probably just stood there just frozen still, not able to move. She wanted to scream, but with all that was going around her, with all that was swirling around her, she probably couldn't even put words to the thoughts that she had. And then someone yelled, stone her. But Jesus, Jesus broke through all that noise. Jesus' calm is what calmed her. Jesus' compassion That's what helped her breathe again. You see, the crowd looked and saw an adulterer, but Jesus looked and saw her. It was as if he peered through even into her soul. He was the calm in her storm. He drew her up like in Psalm 40. He drew her up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set her feet upon a rock, making her steps secure. Then he spoke those saving words, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. Ladies, there's a calm and a storm. There's a man in the middle of all the mess. There's one who sees you. He sees into your soul. He knows you. He's been there with you in all the moments. No matter how the world uses you, Jesus will always treat you with dignity. No matter how that that guy treats you, Jesus will always have compassion on you. And, and no matter uh, if, if they condemn you, and maybe even they say, you're dead to me, Jesus will always say to you, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believe and receive Jesus' love today. Don't believe what the world says about you. Don't believe what that guy says about you. Reject what they say about you. Rather, believe what he promises Receive the love that He offers. Jesus views you with dignity, He views you with compassion, and He offers you salvation. Believe and receive His love today. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for this moment as terrifying as it had to have been for that poor lady. I thank You for it happening so that we can learn from it. So that we can learn. we're supposed to treat others Lord may we be someone who uh, sees people not as pawns to be used but, but people to be loved in your kingdom Lord I pray that we would love like you love more importantly today I pray that each and every moment in the highs and the lows and the mundane that we would receive and believe your love today it's in Jesus name we pray Amen